Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the second Sunday after the Epiphany, January 16th, 2022, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.com. Good morning again. A special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the gospel lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, can be found on page 1648 of your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why does the, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Then he said, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Maybe I've told this story here before, and maybe I haven't. I've told it enough throughout the years that I can't remember when and where I've told it, so I'm just going to go for it, and if you've heard it before, deal with it, all right? This is one of the most formative experiences of my youth in faith during my growing up years. I was seven or eight years old at my home church in Grand Forks, and that church had just finished building a beautiful, brand new sanctuary. Now, when you're a small child, more space in the church, in this case, Double the space available to us in the church simply meant more space to run around, to play tag and hide and seek. And that's what my friends and I were doing either before or after some church event. And as we were running around, goofing off, going from room to room, I was singled out and caught by the sleeve by one of the dear old ladies of the congregation who got in my face and very, very sternly scolded me, there is no running in church. Church is not a place for fun. And I listened. <laughs> I, I went away quietly after that. The look on her face and the tone of her voice and her general level of unhappiness have always stuck with me. And now, as an adult, 
I have to admit that I have also struggled with the same attitude at times. I've talked with many here in our own congregation that due to the nature of our low church service, and, and, and no matter what anyone in the AFLC says, we are, in fact, low church. I have never, as your pastor, worn a collar. I have never, nor is it permitted for me to wear robes and vestments during the service. That's actually in our bylaws. We are a low church. And one, there's not anything wrong with that. But as a pastor, I find it very difficult at times to communicate that what happens in the sanctuary during the service is sacred, is holy. And here's the tension for us, particularly here in this space right now as Christians. We want the things of God to be familiar. We want our children to be here among us. We want this place at this time to be somewhere where people desire to come. We want it to be familiar. But we never ever want it to be common. And I've struggled with that distinction. And at the same time, the breathless misery and the grumpiness of some in expressing their faith tends to leave an impression on people. And that's what we're going to address with our gospel lesson this morning. The wedding at Cana, Jesus' first public miracle, we're told, is an interesting passage for us to examine in that context. Because it looks like Jesus is in the same boat as the grumpy, angry, miserable Christians. It appears that he is an unwilling participant at this wedding. And as someone who doesn't enjoy dancing and who does not really enjoy public spaces, I get it. I get what Jesus is conveying for us this morning. He has harsh words with his mother for involving him in the behind-the-scenes hand-wringing of running out of wine for the guests. But if we're able to look past that and observe what is really happening, we will see not a grumpy Jesus, but rather a divine Jesus who not only enjoys celebration, but also sanctions it. And so turning our eyes to John 2 this morning, we first learn and note that God sanctions joy. Before we get too far along, I need to clarify at this point in the sermon that I am going to almost interchangeably use the terms Jesus and God. We have to get that out of the way. This is partly because, as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is in fact God, but in reality, our ears and our minds are accustomed to using God to describe the Father. But this morning, I would like to highlight that when God the Father creates and interacts with his creation, he does so through his word, through his son. And, and that's one of the realities that, that's going to inform us 
this morning. And in fact, as he does this, he does this through his spirit as well. The Holy Trinity never artificially separates the three persons, even if we want to keep them distinct. So keep that in mind. Back now to the wedding at Cana. It appears that this wedding is a big deal. It's a a significant event. Jesus' family was invited. Mary was there as a guest and mentioned specifically. And, And Mary is not often mentioned in Scripture after the nativity accounts. Uh, But Jesus was also invited. And Jesus was well known enough at this point that his disciples were invited along with him. Jesus is there with some of his disciples. And again, at first glance, it doesn't appear that Jesus is too thrilled about spending a lot of time at this wedding. Right away, John reveals to us that a catastrophe has fallen upon the host's The wedding celebration, what we would see today as the wedding reception, has run out of wine. And and you have to understand exactly what this means for those involved. Uh, Generally, if if you're at a wedding today with the bar and and the bar runs out of liquor, it kind of means it's time to go home. But in ancient times... For those in charge of the feasting to run out of wine, it would have been the embarrassment of all embarrassments. It would have brought shame on that whole family. If you want to know what people would have been gossiping about, this is what they would have been gossiping about. This is a a dire situation. And Mary demonstrates for us, yet again, just as she did when the angel told her she was going to be pregnant with Jesus, she, Mary demonstrates a tender and caring heart. And Mary knows, well, this family hosting the wedding celebration can't do anything about running out of wine. Someone is there who can. Just so happens that Mary's son is the son of God. And so Mary approaches Jesus, and she appeals to them, to him, to help the hosts save face. And it's here that Jesus, at least to our ears, answers his mother harshly. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. On, on Twitter, this might have been reported as Jesus saying, not my problem. That's not what he's doing. Because we would do well here, as at many other places, when Jesus speaks in the gospel, to recognize that when Jesus answers harshly, when Jesus answers with an unexpected tone, he does this to elicit faith from those he speaks to. He does this because he is looking for a response of faith. That's exactly what happens here. Note that even in Jesus' harsh response, Mary doesn't object. Mary doesn't snap at him. Don't treat your mother that way. Mary knows. Mary understands. And Mary receives Jesus' words and responds in faith by telling the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Jesus acts. And whenever Jesus acts, he acts to save. He acts to help. He acts to bless. Mary knows what others find yet to be hard to believe, that Jesus is caring and compassionate. And Jesus, in turn, responds in exactly that way. He tells the servants to fill up six large stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Okay, no, no. I want you guys to start picturing this right now. 20 to 30 gallons. For those of you that have the standard Target plastic kitchen waste basket, and you all know what I'm talking about with the slightly curved lip and everything, that's a 13-gallon tub. So you are thinking right now of a container that is twice that size. And there's six of them. Jesus has the servants fill up all six with water to the brim. 150 gallons. And then they draw some out and they bring it to the master of the feast, the person in charge of the party. And upon drinking, this person finds it to be the best tasting wine he's ever had. And there's 150 gallons of it. Just imagine that scope. And also, pause here to appreciate the good humor of the Apostle John in describing the reality and the pragmatism of the situation as the master of the feast tells the bridegroom, hey, the way this works is that you bring out the good wine first, and once everyone's had a little bit, you can start lowering the quality of the wine because they're not going to appreciate it as much. But here you are, you've saved the best wine for last. There's a little bit of good humor here in Scripture for us. But what's going on here? Why does Jesus respond in this way? Well, first, Jesus demonstrates to all who witness this that he is God because he displays a mastery over creation. And this, in fact, is one of the major themes of Jesus' ministry and his miracle working. We would expect the God of the universe to have control over creation. It just comes with the territory. But Jesus steps into human flesh and steps into human history, and he does just that. And he does it repeatedly in the Gospels. He heals the sick. He calms storms. And in a weird sort of theme in the Gospels, Jesus displays a unique power over food. It happens again and again and again. He feeds the 5,000. He provides 150 gallons of wine in Cana for a wedding feast. God is in control of the bare necessities of human life. 
And for those paying attention in Cana 2,000 years ago and in Minneapolis right now, Jesus is building for us the case that he is the Messiah and that the Messiah is God himself. And you can fill in the blanks with the therefore. But secondly, there's a part we often miss is that God, through his creative powers and through his creative word here, blesses his creatures not only by meeting their most basic needs, but by meeting them and giving them joyful abundance. What we're seeing Jesus do here in action is act out what we confess with the first article of the Apostles' Creed and the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. God is God over creation, and God provides us with daily bread. But with God as our creator and with God as the provider of daily bread, we often fail to see that God does so much more for us than sustain us with the bare necessities. He often, but not always, provides for us with much more than we actually need. Our cup runneth over as David says in Psalm 23. This in turn allows us to be generous with what God has given us, which we see demonstrated by the host of the wedding party. The whole point of the wedding celebration in the Middle East 2,000 years ago was to be generous and to allow others to come and celebrate alongside you. And God himself allows this man and this family to do just that. And in doing so, God allows us to experience joy. That's the point. Celebrating the joy of God's creation. This is also quite often the point of the Christian life under the gospel. Granted, there are times for seriousness... Reflection and mourning, granted, there is a difference between letting our children run wild in the basement and climb on the altar railing, but still, the Christian life lived under the good news of the gospel is intended for us to frequently express the joy of those who have been redeemed by God himself. God loves us perfectly and abundantly. And from his own love and goodness has given everything we need for life and salvation. We may not always experience the joy and pleasure of material abundance, but that's not the point. The reality behind this, the reality of the gospel, means that no matter what our material situation is, we have abundance of life. We have eternal life. To that end, the last truth we see here in Cana is God not only sanctions joy, God sanctions celebration. Now much has been made with these verses that Jesus is also sanctioning and establishing marriage as God-pleasing. And it's absolutely true. 
I, I, I thought about talking about that at length, but I just could not make, get that into the sermon without doubling the length of the sermon, so we're not going to go there, because as I prepped the sermon, I noticed one really interesting thing. The bride and the groom in this passage are never mentioned together. As much as this is about a marriage celebration, God saves his word about marriage for other places in Scripture. We only catch a brief glimpse of the bridegroom here. What is the focus for us, however, is the celebration. And it's one thing to discover, or at least rediscover the joy of God's provision in our lives. It's one thing to see if only occasionally God's abundant provision for us but it's entirely different for Christians to celebrate it. And I think this is where modern Christians really need to learn a lesson. We, as Christians, have a really hard time celebrating. We do. Maybe for us, it's our mostly humble Scandinavian heritage. We don't like to draw attention to ourselves. Maybe it's some heritage of the pious Puritan Christian identity of our nation's early years. Maybe it's a new and good awareness of the needs and plight of people around us. Well, whatever the case might be, Christians today on some level seem reluctant to celebrate, seem reluctant to enjoy themselves. But here, in Cana, Jesus chooses to reveal his identity as God, which is, by the way, why this passage comes across as a gospel lesson during the season of Epiphany. Jesus identifies himself as God at a celebration by aiding the celebration itself. And that reality is what ties everything for us together today. The gospel finds its most direct proclamation and application in celebration. The very simple announcement of the forgiveness of sins should be a celebration. The baptism of a baby redeemed by the blood of Christ and ushered into the kingdom of God is a celebration. But also here, this morning, we will also together celebrate. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now for some, maybe even for many, receiving the Lord's Supper is also a solemn and impactful occasion. That's how it is for me. During the service, after leading the service and preaching and, and guiding you all through the various elements of the service, at the very end of it all, I kneel and I get 30 brief seconds to let the gospel wash over me. And every Sunday, it breaks me. But it's still a celebration. We are still receiving the very body and blood of our Lord and Savior on our tongues and on our mouths for the actual forgiveness of sins. And this act in and of itself is not a sign, is not a symbol, it is reality. 
And that reality should impact us. It should cause us to reflect and remember the price Jesus paid for our sins, but it should cause us and give us cause to celebrate. And if that wasn't enough, Holy Communion in Scripture is directly and intentionally intended to be a picture of what is described for us in the book of Revelation as the wedding supper of the Lamb. As you come to the altar this morning, as you kneel or stand and receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you kneel or stand with the saints for all time and in all places at the table of God and you celebrate with Him. The reality of it all, as you do that with the church, God celebrates with you. Far too often, dear saints, in the history of the church, our redeeming and saving God has been presented to us as a God who is reluctant to save. As a God who at the end of it all finally had to send his son to the cross. But this is not true. Jesus Christ on the cross in your place for the forgiveness of your sins, that was God's plan all along. Jesus Christ, three days later, emerging from the tomb is how God designed it. As you come into the sanctuary, as you enter into the divine service, as you worship and as you receive God's good gifts, God is here with you. Jesus Christ is here with you. The Holy Spirit is here with you celebrating. And if you listen... And if you meditated on it long enough, you can hear the words of God's victory as he delights to forgive you and save you and celebrate with you. Amen. And now, may the peace of God which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.